0: Today's scripture reading is in Matthew chapter five, verse five through seven. For context though, I'm gonna go ahead and read from verse one of Matthew five, and then we'll be studying Matthew five, 5, 1, five through seven. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. So last week, we began to explore the greatest sermon ever preached, and it probably would have looked something a little bit like this. A hilltop, people gathered around, and Jesus sits, and he begins to teach. The Sermon on the Mount is the message of Jesus that's recorded in Matthew 5 through 7, the chapters Matthew 5 through 7. And last week, we saw how Jesus began this message with some startling and unworldly upside-down words. In fact, if you did miss last week, make sure that you hop on our website, sackvillage.org, and you find where you can actually listen to last week's message, or if you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can catch last week's message that way. Listen to it in the first installment of the Beatitudes, because there's a lot of background information we covered in that sermon. This one begins with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And these words began the section of the Sermon on the Mount that we know as the Beatitudes. If you were there, you'll recall how we talked about the meaning behind blessed. It's a word that's loaded with both baggage and packed with meaning. A word we are inclined to take the, that to, we are inclined to take it to mean that God bestows a specially appointed blessing on those who make it their business to do the Beatitudes that the Beatitudes are a sort of new law that we have to be strictly obeyed, something we must do. But that's not what's in mind when we read the Beatitudes at all or when we see the word blessed. Instead, what is in mind is the idea of the ideal. It is an exclamation or an announcement of what life according to God's design looks like. It's no list at all. It's not a list of do's and don'ts but a description of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It is not what you must do in order to become a citizen of the kingdom of God. No, it is what the new life in Christ produces in the citizens of the kingdom. It is what the kingship of Jesus brings to or bestows on the citizens of the kingdom. Think about a plant for a moment. I'm sure some of you have tried your hand at, uh, at gardening. I know Lanny has a beautiful garden in his backyard. I'd love to see that, that garden there, but we've all tried probably at some time or another, and most of us have probably killed a lot of plants, right? But think about a plant. Have you ever had a plant in a garden or you've seen one and you imagine this plant is lush and green, beautiful, beautiful leaves, not, none of them are brown or wilted, the stem and the stalk of the plant looks healthy and strong. We might say something like, man, that, that, plant, that plant's flourishing, right? That plant's flourishing. It is probably getting everything it needs, according to design, to look that way. It's getting water. It's getting sun, good soil, maybe some plant food. With the proper inputs, the life of the plant flourishes, the life of the plant first is, and a flourishing plant looks like the plant we described green, lush, no wilting, no brown, right? Jesus is saying that this is what a flourishing person looks like. He is poor in spirit, mournful, humble, peacemaker, and so on. These are not the inputs, the must do's, these are the outputs. The input is Christ. The input is Christ. The input is the new life in Christ. It is the new birth by the Spirit. It is the imminent presence of God in our lives that makes us a new kind of human, each one of us. These are marks of a true Christian, or in other words, a disciple of Jesus. A disciple recognizes his or her own spiritual bankruptcy, they recognize that they, they bring nothing to the table except every reason to be rejected. They understand that even their works of righteousness, even the good things that they do, or their goodness within their person is corrupt, and they're unable to save themselves. They are completely dependent on grace, on unmerited favor, undeserved favor. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is populated with those kind of people. He then said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. True disciples carry around with them a certain mournfulness. First, over the ongoing presence of sin and the sin's deceit and destructive power in their own lives, they mourn over that. But second, they mourn because they look around at a world in which sin has caused so much pain so much sorrow, so much suffering and chaos. They see the lives of the least among them in society and they are broken over them. They see the pain of abuse, injustice and oppression, the demeaning and dehumanizing of the defenseless, the exploitation of the vulnerable, the bloodied faces of the children who are caught up in wars of greed and hatred. They are crushed by the disparities that exist, even in the richest country like ours. They are torn and weep for the torn relationships, for divorce, for custody battles, for lies and slander, for disobedience and fear. They mourn, but they mourn with hope that one day the good creator will make everything right, will rectify every injustice, and will dry every tear and will judge every unrepentant wrongdoer and exact vengeance on them. They mourn with hope. The mark of a Christian is one who mourns with hope. So that's the background for today's text as we move forward to, to verse five and we look at three of these blessed, or we call them maccharisms in that first sermon. Macarisms. these, these blessed are for theys. We're gonna look at three of them. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. If it is so, as Jesus says, that the humble are blessed, then what does it mean to be humble? To be humble, which in some versions or translations of your Bible might be translated meek or gentle in spirit, it's the same word, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher, once said or pointed out that having a true view of yourself that is expressed in your attitude and your conduct toward others is what it means to be humble. Having a true view of yourself that is expressed in your attitudes and conduct toward others is what it means to be humble. And in this way, there is a sort of building that we've seen in the Beatitudes from poor in spirit to those who mourn to those who are humble. The poor in spirit who recognizes their spiritual bankruptcy, they're unable to do sufficient good in order to save themselves, right? They recognize that they are a created thing like all of us and that as a created thing, we're accountable to our creator God. And that they have to give account for what they do in this earth. And when they give account for what they do, if they do it according to their own way, they will be found lacking. That's poor in spirit. Well, that produces in them this mournfulness over sin and sin's effect, first in their own life, but in the greater world around them. And having a poor in spirit, a poor spirit, and a mournfulness over sin leads them to express attitudes and conduct toward others that is not superior or or domineering. It doesn't look down on anyone, including those who are most caught up in a sinful life because the blessed one does not think so highly of themselves. If I am the blessed, humble one, this means others can say the most wretched things about me without me needing to mount a defense against them. Why? Because God will ultimately give the humble the high place they would not seize for themselves. God will ultimately give them the high place that they would not seize for themselves. They will inherit the earth. God will supplant the wicked and make the humble the king of the hill. If you want a more robust understanding of this idea of what it means to be humble in the kingdom of God, then read all of Psalm 37. All of Psalm 37. But I'll read a little bit from verse 18 through 20. The Lord watches over the blameless all their days, and their inheritance will last forever. They will not be disgraced in times of adversity. They will be satisfied in days of hunger, but the wicked will perish The Lord's enemy, like the glory of the pastures, will fade away. They will fade away like smoke. Why are the humble blessed? Because they know he fights their battles. He fights their battles. All is ours in Christ. If you are in Christ, all is yours in Christ. All of it. One preacher put it this way. Self-renunciation is the way to world domination. Self-renunciation is the way to world domination. Do you feel it necessary to fight your own battles? Do you feel you have uh you, you have to defend your honor all the time, constantly against other people? Do you feel like you need to establish your position or ascend the hill? John Stott once said that we much prefer to condemn, other, condemn, condemn ourselves rather than allow others to condemn us. How many of you guys know that's true? We, we can be self-deprecating. Oh, yeah, me, yeah, I struggle. I have this, I have that. But whatever you do, don't you condemn me. Don't you speak ill of me. Don't, don't you come against my honor. I've got honor to defend. The humble don't see it that way. What do we see in the life of Christ himself. When accused, did he defend himself? Did Jesus defend himself when he was accused? When he was beaten and whipped, did he say, you know what, forget it guys. I'm I'm gonna take off this earthly robe, this body, and I'm gonna show you who I really am and call on the armies of heaven to have you wiped off the face of the earth. Did Jesus do that? No. 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 says, For you were called to this. Why were you called to this? Why were you called? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. We could stay a little while longer on this one. Blessed are the humble, but we'll move on for now to verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. For righteousness, for they will be filled. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the humble, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to possess an insatiable appetite for relationship with God that is unclouded by disobedience. I'm gonna say that one again. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to possess an insatiable appetite for relationship with God that is unclouded by disobedience. This is righteousness, that is both one of personal moral character, that's the obedience part, but it's also one that lends itself toward right relationship with God. It's ongoing and it's unrelenting, and not just for yourself. It's not the kind of life lived so that you might possess something for yourself, but it's also for all of humankind a desire, a hunger, a thirst that all of humankind around us might experience that pre-Eden or pre-fall Eden where God and humankind walked in a, a shalom, a peace. It's a hunger and thirst for that as you look at a world around you and say, I want that for you, not just for me. I want that for all of you. Peace with God through Jesus Christ. True righteousness always has a social dynamic to it. It's not just personal, it's outward looking too. Uh, the reformer Martin Luther said that the command to the disciple to hunger and thirst for righteousness is not a command to crawl into a corner or go out to a desert and live a hermit life of piety, to go work on yourself. The call to hunger and thirst for righteousness is instead to run out from those hiding places into the world with all your might and all your vigor and to offer fully your hands and your feet and your whole body and to wager everything you have and can do to see righteousness established on this earth. A disciple is one with a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that can never be curbed or stopped one that looks for nothing and cares for nothing except the accomplishment and maintenance of what is right. If you cannot make the entire world seek and obey God, at least do all you can. If you cannot make the entire world to seek and obey God, at least do everything you can in that direction. But Jesus said to seek first, what? kingdom and his righteousness. And all these other concerns will be added, taken care of, considered by God. But you seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, that his righteousness and I reign on this earth. Jesus once prayed for his disciples and he prayed that they would be one with the Father as Jesus is one with the Father, and that with the Father and Christ, they might be one in him, so that the world would know that they are Jesus' disciples. Right relationship, righteousness, be one with God, so that the world might know you are his disciples. A disciple has this insatiable appetite for God, for personal righteousness for right relationship with God and for social righteousness that all the world would be filled with the knowledge of God all of it so why are they blessed why are the hungering and the thirsting for righteousness why are they blessed because they will be filled they will see it you will see it they have a promise that this hunger and thirst will absolutely positively Be satisfied, 100% filled. I don't know if, how many of you guys make your way over to Las Vegas much and and do some poker. I don't, but (laughs) I was waiting to see if anyone's hand shot up, you know, (laughs) Uh, no judgment. But you know, I've heard over at the poker tables that uh, you can go all in, right? All in, all your money, everything in. And that's a pretty risky move unless you got some pretty good cards I imagine, right? The one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness can go all in for it and it's not risky at all. No risk whatsoever. You can go all in to hunger and thirst for righteousness and you will be filled. You will be filled, all in. If you trust and believe God, there's no risk. You can wager everything in your life to go on this mission, to fill the world with the glory of God and the righteousness of God And it will succeed. It will succeed. Finally and and fully will succeed. For blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Finally and forever, it will succeed. And you can go all in on that mission. Which leads us to our final one in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Proverbs twenty-one thirteen says, The one who shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will himself also call out and not be answered. The one who shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will himself also call out and not be answered. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The flourishing life in the kingdom of God is one marked by the active showing of mercy. Grace, we we love grace, right? We sing about the amazing grace. We love grace. We, We love to sing songs about God's grace. And grace is always about how God dealt with sin and the guilt of sin the stain of sin and the the guilt of sin. When we say we're saved by grace, we are saying that by the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross, he substituted for us for our sins. And he took the penalty that was our due, due us for our sins. He took it upon himself and his righteousness was credited to us. This is what grace looks like, grace that is saving. Our judicial guilt is removed from us by the work of Jesus. On the cross, but mercy, mercy is different than grace. Mercy always deals with pain, suffering, misery, and distress. Mercy is about the effects of sin, not the fact of sin. Mercy deals with the pain, the misery, the distress that is caused in our life and in our world by the presence of sin. Mercy is about alleviating pain and suffering and making the effects less severe on the one who is hurting. The merciful, how many of you guys wanna be merciful or more merciful than you already are? How many wanna grow in mercy to show more of mercy to others, to help others deal with the pain and the misery and the distress caused by sin in their lives? The merciful look for ways to put the salve or the balm on the wound. They look for ways to bind up the broken heart. They look for ways to put food and drink in the mouth of the one that is parched or the stomach that is aching for sustenance. The merciful look for a tear that they can dry through comfort and love. The merciful look to sit with the lonely, to ask the name of the homeless man or woman you find on the street to hear the story of the young woman seeking out an abortion. They offer relief from sin's effects, not pardon for the sins. They offer relief. And therein is a blessing, actually, because to show mercy does not mean an endorsement. You can show mercy to anyone. It's not an endorsement of their life because it's not a pardon for their sin. It's to relief, relieve Relieve the suffering that sin is causing on someone. It doesn't mean an endorsement of behavior. It is simply a mark of a disciple to show mercy. The good Samaritan showed mercy. Our God shows mercy. Get this, he heals, he cures, he helps and relieves life, right? How many of you guys have ever felt the comfort of the Lord's presence in your life? See, this is not pardon for sin. This is comfort. This is him showing mercy to you, to help you, to comfort you through the troubles and sin's effect on your life. It's not grace, that's mercy. You might have a concept of God where all he does and all he cares about is sin and guilt, that's it. But in this in-between time, before we experience the perfection of the new heavens and the new earth... God is also very much so merciful to us as we deal with the effects of sin on the image bearers of this earth. And not only is he merciful with us, but he calls each one of you, if you are a disciple, to be merciful. And he will do in you what he calls you to do. He will create it in you. Someone's going and showing mercy to someone else, I guess. (laughs) I wasn't sure if they were coming for me, if I'm talking too loud or something. (laughs) Start running back to the church. (laughs) Nothing proves more clearly and more definitively that we are forgiven and we are made new in Jesus Christ than when we show mercy to the most unloved, unworthy, powerless to repay, unlike us person. When we show mercy, we show that we've received mercy and therefore we want to give it. The humble are merciful. The humble are merciful. The Beatitudes, as we continue our journey through these back at the church next week, the Beatitudes, they help us to know our identity as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Here's your identity. If you are in Christ, here's your identity. Poor in spirit, mournful, humble, hunger and thirst for righteousness, and merciful and here's your promise here's why you are blessed here's why you are flourishing why because the kingdom of heaven is yours because you will be comforted because you will inherit the earth because you will be filled and you yourself will be shown mercy for the mercy you show to others remember that analogy of the plants that i talked about before If you are a believer today, you say, I put my faith and hope in Jesus Christ, but you don't see this life that we're describing at work within you. You don't see it at work within you. I'm here to tell you in love, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Do not leave this place thinking that you are to accept a life devoid of these blessings. These are yours in christ this is the new life this is citizenship in the heaven if you don't see it you have work to do with the lord to go to the lord to ask him if i'm connected to the vine the life of the vine flows through me and out of me and if i don't see the life of the vine in me lord what what what's at work i must grow I want, we all need to grow. We all need to grow in our faith and our mercy and all of those things as the life moves in us. But if we don't see it, if we're void of it, then I want you to be worried. I want you to be worried because maybe you have been cut off or maybe your confession is empty and you never attached in the beginning, but that's okay. Because here we are today and the Lord gave you another day to be here today. And that's okay. Because if you want to live that blessed life, then all you need is Christ. Christ in you. Receive him. By faith, repent of your sins. Turn. Confess. Receive the life of Christ. And begin to see the life grow up within you in increasing measure. Poverty of spirit. Mournfulness. The blessed, the blessed characteristics of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. All that can change today. You need only the new life that is found in Christ alone. King Jesus is our hope and our salvation, people. Only through repentance and faith can you come to him. But if you do, he will bring you into this life that is truly life. And you will inherit the kingdom of heaven.